So we've entitled this series, Mission in a Secular Age. And I think that we can all agree that engagement in God's mission to the world is not a optional extra for the Christian life, but it is intrinsic to the Christian life. There is no participation in Christ without participation in his mission. Jesus makes that clear in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Or at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus says that even as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He sends us to represent him and his purposes in the world. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gives us our marching orders. And uh, yeah, let me get that clicker. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples, after his resurrection, before his ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So our call is to be witnesses, to bear witness to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And this is the task that he gives to all of us, not just the religious professionals. And it is my strong conviction and belief that if God is going to make a difference in and through us in our present day and in our cultural moment, uh, for some of the reasons that I'll describe in a, in a second, it's going to be because of you, not because of me. Uh, that was true of the early church in many ways, and it's certainly true of the church today, that, that the way in which many people who do not yet know Christ are going to come to know him is not through the church gathered here in the sanctuary on a Sunday, but rather the church scattered out in your various vocations, at, at work, at school, in your communities, and in your neighborhoods. And on the one hand, that might seem like a daunting challenge. How do we bear witness faithfully to the reality of who Christ is and what he's done for us in light of the challenges that we face in our cultural moment? And yet, at the same time, uh, though we are facing unique challenges, I think you should be energized by, by the call that God has placed upon you. And we have to remember uh, that as Christ gave power through the Holy Spirit to that first band of followers, so he empowers us with that same spirit to do what we could otherwise not do uh, on our own steam or in our own strength. So uh, what I'd like to do uh, very briefly is recap some of what we talked about last time so that uh, we get a little refresher, everybody's on the same page, and then move into uh, some new materials. So last time you'll remember that I mentioned Leslie Newbegin, who has uh, become famous for his insight that the West, the Western world, is now in a missionary situation. So he went to Cambridge, uh, he was ordained in the Church of Scotland in 1936, and then he went as a foreign missionary to South India. He eventually became the Bishop of the Church of South India, and then returned to uh, the West, he returned to the UK in 1974. So he spent 40 years in India, as a foreign missionary, learning how to communicate the message of the gospel across a cultural divide, where the presuppositions of the broader dominant Hindu culture made the gospel seem simply impossible. But then when he returned to the UK, nearly 40 years later, he realized that the West was now in a missionary situation. 
that in the West he was also a foreigner of sorts and he had to learn how to communicate the gospel again across a cultural divide where the basic presuppositions of the dominant culture made the Christian gospel seem absurd. And to add to that challenge, he said that uh, the Western culture in which we live is not a pre-Christian society, but a post-Christian society, a society that has been born out of uh, its Christian roots and therefore is in some ways even more hostile, even more deeply opposed and resistant to the message of the, of the gospel because of the ways in which it had been once so profoundly influenced by it. So he talked about the importance of a missionary encounter of the gospel with Western culture. He said, after having spent most of my life as a missionary in India, I was called to teach missiology and then to become a missionary in a typical inner city area in England. This succession of roles has forced me to ask the question, what would be involved in a missionary encounter between the gospel and this whole way of perceiving, thinking, and living that we call modern Western culture? So that's the fundamental question we're asking. What would a encounter between the gospel and Western culture look like? And uh, to help us answer that question, we've also turned to Charles Taylor, who's a, a living philosopher who uh, has also become well known for a book he wrote called A Secular Age. And we've entitled our series, Mission in a Secular Age. So what do we mean by that? Originally, the word secular simply referred to this world as it is in opposition to the world as it will be when Jesus makes all things new. So this was a way of capturing the already but not yet reality of God's inbreaking kingdom. God's kingdom is here, but it has not yet come in its fullness. So this world as it is was referred to the secular, the, the city of man was the way that Augustine put it, as opposed to uh, the age to come, the, the city of God. Later, the, the term secular came to mean simply neutral or non-religious space, but Charles Taylor uses the word secular in a very specific way. He's trying to uh, capture what it means to live uh, in this age that is now our own. And so when he asked the question, what does it mean to say that we live in a secular age? He describes it like this. He says, the shift to secularity consists among other things of a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in which it is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. So he's using the word secular in a slightly different way and he's, he's trying to capture what it actually feels like for believers and skeptics alike to live within our society. And so what he would reject is the so-called secularization thesis, which was uh, popular in, in decades past where many people would say that, well, religion is fundamentally irrational, science and reason will eventually replace religion and faith. But uh, the events of 9-11 essentially proved that to be untrue. Uh, we see that in the secular age in which we live, yes, uh, there are many people who hold to no beliefs whatsoever, but at the same time, faith persists and in many ways, faith is still growing. So how do we actually account for the secular age? It's not one where uh, religious faith appears to die out uh, and is overrun by non-believers, but rather it's one where believers and non-believers alike uh, coexist. 
So the, the question that he asks is this. Why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, 1500 in our Western society, while in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable? So that, that's the question that he pursues in, in his work. And I think that gets to the essence of this. Uh, we've, we've entered a time where, where faith is seen as merely one option among many, and how have the conditions of belief changed so that in the past it was inconceivable not to believe in God, but now belief has become somewhat contested. So last time uh, I, uh, I shared some of my uh, artistic ability with you. I've got uh, some more drawings to share with you tonight as well. Uh, but here's a quick uh, recap of uh, how we might describe what was life like in America in, let's say, the 1950s then uh, versus what it's like for us now. And uh, what I tried to communicate uh, through uh, this drawing was the idea that in the past, uh, most human beings, even across cultures, not even just in America, but across cultures, had some sense of a sacred order of God, the good, or the moral law. And human beings understood that in order to find fullness, in order to find meaning, purpose in life, you had to get out of yourself and connect to something external, the sacred order, God, the good, the moral law. And, at least within our society, one that had been profoundly shaped by Christianity in many ways, the major cultural institutions, the arts, education, the church, business, government, they all pointed to at least a certain set of beliefs and values that even if they were not explicitly Christian, uh, they certainly uh, shared a lot of overlapping uh, qualities with Christianity. So you could say that the cultural institutions pointed to these shared beliefs and values, some, some moral truths, and this created uh, what uh, philosopher uh, Peter, or sociologist Peter Berger has called a plausibility structure. The idea there is simply Plausibility structures are beliefs, convictions, and understandings that either green light truth claims as plausible or red light them as implausible. So in other words, the plausibility structure are the uh, commonly held beliefs, the things that people simply take for granted. Uh, they just assume that they're true. And, and, and uh, because of the, the conditions uh, around you, it, it leads you to find certain things to be more plausible, more believable than others. And so in this situation, where the cultural institutions are, are pointing to these overlapping sets of beliefs and values, it creates a plausibility structure where it's easier to accept uh, that Christianity is true because everything seems to uh, providing you with a set of answers to some core questions such as, uh, well, who are we as human beings? Is there a God? Uh, is there right and wrong? What happens? Uh, with life after death. And so as a result of that, all of this creates what you could call a religious consciousness, uh, where people, even if they're not explicitly Christians, they have categories in their minds for understanding the idea of moral absolutes or sin and guilt or salvation. And so in the past, it uh, wasn't so hard to engage in evangelism or to share your faith with people because you could you could give a person a basic gospel presentation and it would essentially connect the dots. They already had that sort of background understanding. Now you're connecting it specifically to the person of Christ, his work through his death and his resurrection. Now you've got 
uh, all the pieces falling into place and you understand what it means to be a Christian, to, to, to put your faith in Christ and to live the Christian life. Now, all of that has changed. <laughs> and that's, that's uh, what we're trying to understand is what has changed and why are things so different now? So in the world in which we live, and again, this is primarily coming from Charles Taylor, he would say that human beings no longer think that they need to connect with something external outside of themselves in order to find fullness in life, to discover who they are, or to find meaning or purpose. Now, rather than connecting to the sacred order, to God, the good, the moral law, human beings believe that in order to find fullness, we need to look deep within. So we try to find meaning and purpose within our very selves. We, we, we think of ourselves as people with, with hidden depths. And the way in which we are truly human, the way in which we live an authentic life is by discovering who we are and expressing whatever lies within. So this is what leads to what many have called expressive individualism. But Taylor would say that, that the world in which we're living now is so different, it's almost completely different from anything that has ever gone before in any previous culture because there's almost no culture that's so elevated the autonomous individual above everything else. It's almost the first culture in the world that has said there is no sacred order or there are no moral absolutes and that whatever meaning is to be found in human life has to be found within the imminent, not the transcendent. It's gotta be found within the individual, not within some uh, external uh, person or power. And so that plausibility structure has now disappeared. Whereas before the cultural institutions pointed to that basic set of beliefs and values and moral truths, we all know this, right? Now the cultural institutions today, the arts, education, the church, business, government, they all point to the individual. They're no longer pointing to God or to the sacred order. They're all reaffirming this idea that in order to be authentically human, we've got to be our true selves. And if we don't discover who we really are and give that expression, well then we've missed the whole point of our lives. So everything we see in the media, uh, in the university is reaffirming that belief. And so as a result of this, that religious consciousness that was in the background of, of many people's minds is gone. So they're, they're is not this shared understanding that there really are moral absolutes, that there is a true right and wrong. There, there is no conception of sin and guilt or no sense that there is a need for salvation. So if you were here on Sunday, for example, I shared this story about a couple that I had counseled years ago, neither of whom were committed Christians, but they wanted to receive counseling before they got married. And, and we had a discussion about forgiveness. And I was talking about how the only way in which a marriage can survive over the long haul is if we learn how to forgive. And so we talked about what forgiveness is, how we extend it, why we need it. And uh, the, the man in this relationship got visibly upset about this because he said, I don't even wanna entertain the idea that I would ever have to forgive my future wife for something because to say the words, I forgive you, is at the same time implying a judgment that she has done something wrong. And I, I can't even bring myself to the idea that I would ever have to tell my future wife that she's done something wrong because I simply don't believe in right and wrong. Now th that shows us we've come a long, long way 
uh, in just a few short decades in terms of people's understanding of, of morality, to say I don't even want to contemplate the idea of forgiveness because I can't bear the thought of telling another person that they've done something wrong. Uh, so that religious consciousness has, has just disappeared uh, for many people, people that you know, live with, work with, and that may be part of the reason why you often find it a struggle to share your faith with another person because there's not even a framework, there's not even basic categories in place to figure out how you would have a meaningful conversation. So where are we? Well, the, the term that, that Charles Taylor uses to describe life within the secular age, what does it feel like for believers and non-believers alike, is um, this term that he introduces called the imminent frame. So imminent being the opposite of transcendent. Uh, it is focused in on what this world alone uh, has to offer. And so you could think of it as a frame or a box. The imminent frame both boxes in and it boxes out. So it boxes out the idea of the transcendent, the sacred order, God, the good, the moral law. That doesn't exist. The imminent frame, which is the world in which we live, focuses us in on this world alone. Uh, but the question is not whether we live within this box, whether we live in this imminent frame or not, but how. See, Taylor is saying that all of us, Christians alike, we too, living in the 21st century, are living in this imminent frame because we've been so powerfully influenced by the wider world around us. Uh, it, it's hard for us to believe in the same way that people might have generations before uh, because of the reality of difference. Uh, in the past, people experienced uh, pluralism. People were aware that there were other people in other cultures, but in the 21st century today, we experience difference more frequently and more intensely. And as a result of that, of course, we, we begin to wonder, well, I have my Christian convictions, but I also wonder if I'm right, I could be wrong. Uh, and so faith is possible uh, but it is now much more contested, and therefore it becomes somewhat more fragile. Uh, and, and so we too, even as Christians, live within this imminent frame. The, the question is, do we live in it with, a, uh, with the windows shut and the blinds drawn? Do we live in it in a closed form or in a form that is open? The windows are open to the possibility of something outside. Uh, the the most fundamentalist atheist would live in the imminent frame uh, with the windows closed. This is all there is. There's no possibility of there being anything beyond it. Uh, most committed Christians would say, well, we live in the imminent frame, but, but we're open to uh, the possibility of something reaching us uh, from outside. Uh, so the, uh, the point here is that uh, within the imminent frame, we experience this ever-expanding number of ways in which human beings can find fullness. And Charles Taylor calls that the Nova effect, like an imploding star. Whereas in the past, there were a couple options for how to live a human life. Uh, now we have an infinite number of ways of being human. And what that results in is what you could call choose your own identity. So in the past, we might say, well, it was clear for Christians 
that our identity was rooted in Christ. My life is hid in Christ. Uh, but now faith is contested and oftentimes faith is seen as merely one option among many. If the way in which we discover our true selves is not by connecting to something outside of us, but by looking deep within ourselves, we're trying to figure out, well, who am I? What makes me uniquely human? And so we might look to any number of things. We might say, well, I'm gonna base my identity on theater or sports or law or money or medicine or politics or fighting for equal rights or science or music or the academy or being a man or a woman or whatever. Uh, but you see, in all of this, Christianity is perceived as just one option among many. And that has massive implications as well for the ways in which we have conversations with people about our faith. So these are three unique challenges uh, that I mentioned last time. So first of all, there's this challenge of difference. We experience pluralism more frequently and more intensely than in generations past. In addition to that, we have the challenge of disillusion, or which you could also call radical skepticism. We have been trained from the time that we were very young to be critical thinkers, which means that we have been trained to doubt everything. And that is so, uh, that's been so uh, worked into uh, our, our way of thinking and being in the world uh, that it's, it's hard to turn it off. This is why uh, faith is also uh, more challenging for us today. But then there's a third issue, which is the issue of distraction. Uh, and th this could be the result of the information age and the way in which technology is developing with the purpose in many cases of keeping us uh, hooked on whatever social media is uh, trying to, to uh, lure us into or to keep us uh, distracted from things that, that might matter more. So you could say that uh, within this imminent frame, don't you love my drawings? In this uh, imminent frame, these three forces are, are just compounding uh, that focus on what this world alone has to offer. So uh, the, the challenge of difference is leading us to ask that question, well, who am I? Uh, there, there's an infinite number of ways of being human who am I? How do I find my true identity? Uh, the dissolution, the skepticism leads us to ask, well, who, who knows? Uh, there's so many options, so many ways of understanding the world. Who knows what's the right one? Uh, and then the distraction brought about by technology leads us to ask, well, who cares? Right? So we could, we could have a conversation like this that's very deep, thoughtful, philosophical, theological, and then uh, you might get pinged in a minute on your phone and then just all of a sudden you've completely lost your train of thought and are completely obsessed with uh, what just happened on Instagram. So, so these are three challenges. Well, who am I? Who knows if we can know anything at all? And who cares? And so how do we bear witness to the reality of Jesus when all of this is going on? Uh, what we need is to be disruptive. I think what we're being called to is a disruptive witness. So let me talk a little bit more about this. Uh, that term, disruptive witness, was introduced by this author, Alan Noble, uh, who wrote a book that just came out. Uh, some of us on staff uh, finished reading it over the last couple of weeks. 
But he has this to say, Noble writes, the distracted age has three major effects on our ability to communicate about matters of faith and ultimate meaning. It is easier to ignore contradictions and flaws in our basic beliefs. We are less likely to devote time to introspection and conversations about faith can be easily perceived as just another exercise in superficial identity formation. Now, that's a lot, so think about what he's saying here. Uh, first of all, he says, because of the distracted age in which we live, it's easier to ignore contradictions and flaws in our basic beliefs. In other words, that, uh, that gets back to the, uh, the issue of uh, skepticism. Uh, we're so overwhelmed by the skepticism of our age that it's hard to have settled convictions about things. And that often leads us to hold inconsistent beliefs because we feel like we can never get to the bottom of the questions that we're asking in order to make those beliefs consistent. I'll give you a good example of this. When I was working as a campus minister at Northwestern, I often would have uh, conversations about faith and sort of the big meta questions of life uh, with some students that were all involved in one particular fraternity. And these uh, students were very interested in the conversation, bright, thoughtful people, they really liked debating ideas, but they could not care less if their beliefs were inconsistent. Uh, it, it was sort of a surprise to me, but it's something that they had come to live with, is that they figured we can never get to the bottom of everything, and so I'm gonna believe this because I like it, I'm not gonna believe that because I don't like it, and it doesn't matter if those two beliefs are inconsistent with one another. So that's, that's one feature of the distracted uh, secular age in which we live. Second, we're less likely to devote time to introspection. Uh, that relates to what we just said moments ago here with the distraction. Right? We're so distracted that, that we don't often give deep introspective thought to some of the questions that really matter. And then uh, finally, conversations about faith can be easily perceived as just another exercise in superficial identity formation. And so that gets back to this question of who, who am I? See, we think we might be uh, explaining the reality, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus to someone else so that they can embrace it and how do they hear this conversation? They hear it completely differently. They think that you're just describing why have you decided to build your identity around this person, Jesus, and that may be good for you, but it's not good for me because I've got to find my own thing and I've got to do my thing, not yours. Uh, and so uh, Alan Noble's helping us understand the context in which our conversations about faith uh, are happening so that we can be a little bit more purposeful about them. So let me, let me uh, put this another way. Let's go back to the past again. Now in the past, uh, when there was that plausibility structure that was reinforcing basic beliefs and values that at least were consistent with Christianity, it was uh, relatively straightforward to present the gospel to someone and simply help them connect the dots. So if they weren't a Christian, they had that religious consciousness, you can help them connect the dots. And usually the dots that needed to be connected were, well, who is God? Who are we as human beings? What's the problem of sin? What has Christ done uh, to remedy that problem through his life, death, and his resurrection? What does it mean to have faith and put your faith and trust in Christ that you can be a Christian? 
And so here's a, a, a gospel presentation literally from that time period. This was put together by navigators. It was referred to as uh, the bridge to life. It's based on Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So here's a, a great little schematic. Here we have human beings who are sinful, but they're separated by this chasm created by sin, which separates us from the triune God who is holy. So the wages of sin is death. If, if you're working for sin, what you're going to get paid is death. But Jesus intervenes, and the free gift of God in Jesus Christ is eternal life, which is received through faith. So if you put your faith in Jesus, he's the bridge who leads you to life with the triune God. Now, the issue is that uh, as we've moved forward into the post-Christian society in which we're now a part, people have too many objections to the Christian faith for a straightforward gospel presentation oftentimes to connect. There are barriers in the way. Now I'm getting really creative. You like this? <laughs> so we have to start farther back. Before we can have a meaningful conversation about what it means to put your faith in Christ and become a Christian, then live the Christian life, we have to start farther back and we have to deal with this brick wall that we run into, uh, which is a wall of objections to the Christian faith. Now, Tim Keller has, has popularized this. Uh, he's, he's talked about the issue of defeater beliefs. This is a term that we get from philosophers like Alvin Plantiga. A defeater belief is something that you believe that makes it impossible to believe that Christianity is true. So in other words, if you believe belief A, well then belief B can't be possible, and therefore you don't even need to consider belief B. And here I've, I've listed a number of those defeater beliefs. They, they, they're beliefs that, that defeat the very idea of Christianity and therefore you don't have to consider it. So some of these defeater beliefs would be religion is toxic, there can't be only one true faith, Christianity is the enemy of diversity, Christianity is the enemy of freedom, the church is responsible for injustice, Christianity denigrates women, Christianity is sexually repressive, it's homophobic, Christianity condones slavery, it encourages racism. A good God would not allow suffering. A loving God would not send people to hell. Science has disproven Christianity, and the Bible is unreliable. So those are a set of common objections to the Christian faith, which, again, have now become part of the water in which we swim. These are the these are now the basic convictions that people have without even having to stop and think about it. And so these are the kinds of questions that, that people hold in the back of their minds. They, they believe that they're commonly held by everyone else. And because they believe these things, Christianity can't be true and they don't even need to consider it. So Tim Keller often talked about how in order to present the gospel, we, we have to defeat these defeaters. Uh, and how do we do that? Well, first of all, we, we have to, to share enough of the Christian gospel with the friends in our lives so that they might see its power and its beauty. It, it might lead them to say, well, that would be great if it were true. But I've got all these issues. 
Now, if, if you at least have a friend who gets to that point who could say, well, wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be wonderful if it were true? But then you can have a conversation about these, these objections. But if they don't even see the beauty or the attraction of, of, of Christ, they're not even going to bother to have a, a conversation about these objections. It's only until they see uh, the, 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 the beauty and the power of it that, that they might have a meaningful conversation here. And so you've got to learn to do a lot of things. You've got, you've got to learn to, to, to share uh, the gospel in a way that connects with people's hopes and aspirations and convictions, and then also help uh, uh, deconstruct some of these objections that are keeping people from, from giving it consideration. So here we had to take a step back. Now what I'm proposing is we have to take a further step back because of the setting in which we now find ourselves in, in 2020 because we still have these objections that are in place but in addition to that we're living in the imminent frame <laughs> and we're too distracted to care we're too skeptical to know if there are any answers that are going to be satisfied and we're so focused on figuring out who we are going to be uh, that it's hard for us to uh, get out of ourselves and to consider something else. Who am I? Who knows? Who cares? And so what Alan Noble is proposing is that we have to, first of all, disrupt. We have to disrupt the imminent frame. We, we have to unsettle our friends and our neighbors and, and our colleagues and our family members so that they can begin to wonder if there is something outside of the box and that if what they're really looking for in terms of justice beauty hope freedom truth meaning spirituality relationships identity satisfaction happiness can only be found in the transcendent in god rather than in this exclusive humanism in what this world alone can offer and so noble puts it like this he says the implications of all this for evangelism and witness bearing are vast what we intend to be a persuasive proclamation of the gospel may instead be interpreted by our neighbor as an expression of our identity through argument, just like any other dialogue in modern culture. We need a method of living in light of the gospel that unsettles people from their stupor. The way we communicate our faith must puncture the buzz of modern life, the thinness of belief, the closed imminent frame and our attempts at crafting identities and narratives of our own. So this is the challenge. This is what we need to start thinking about. How do we communicate our faith in a way that punctures the buzz of modern life, that, that disrupts that, that imminent frame, that thinking that this world alone can meet all of our desires for something more? How do we point to the thinness of belief, that closed imminent frame, and how do we point to the shallowness of all of our attempts to craft our identities and narratives on our own. Now, uh, there's, uh, there's more here that I would say, but uh, I think that's probably enough for tonight. So I want to take some questions and I want to give time uh, for a little discussion and prayer together. But let me show you where I'm going for next time. Uh, we, we have a a longing for all these things that I've listed here. And we have a sense that that's where true meaning and purpose as human beings can be found. It's, it's in these things, these things that we care about, justice, beauty, hope, etc. 
Uh, and N.T. Wright talks about all of these aspirations as being broken signposts. Uh, we look to these things, we, generally speaking, as human beings, to give our existence, our existence purpose, but, but they don't seem to deliver on what they promise. They're broken. And yet, what N.T. Wright would say is that they're broken, but they are still, nevertheless, signposts pointing us to the truth. And that true justice, true beauty, true hope, true meaning, freedom, spirituality, relationship, identity, satisfaction, etc., can only be found in and through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So when we can reinterpret these in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, then these broken signposts become true signposts, pointing us to the reality of what we're really looking for. So, uh, so I'd like to talk a little bit about that next time. And then the next time we meet, I'd also like to, uh, to talk about this drawing. This is just my teaser now. So this is the big story, another gospel presentation one that uh, was developed by someone who worked for InterVarsity a couple of years ago. There's some things I like about it, some that I don't, but uh, what I think it helps us do is figure out a way of communicating the gospel with other people in a way that can point to these broken signposts, can help us deal with some of those defeater beliefs, the objections to, to the Christian faith, and then uh, show how it all connects to uh, the person of Christ and what he's done for us. So I'm going to uh, stop there. Uh, let, me, let me take a couple questions if you have any questions.